This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on halitosis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Halitosis is common and can affect people of all ages. Severe halitosis is less common, but is still estimated to occur in about 5% of the population. And halitosis can affect confidence and quality of life. In severe cases, it can result in social isolation. So it's important we get the management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Professor Stephen Porter, Director of the UCL Eastman Dental Institute in London. And importantly, Stephen is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Stephen, you're welcome. Let's start off with a fairly straightforward scenario. The patient comes to see you complaining of bad breath. What questions should you ask them? Like any clinical problem, you start at the beginning. How long have they had the particular problem? Did anything seem to um, initiate the whole episode? If it's coming and going, is anything precipitating those episodes? And lastly, what makes it go away? They're the kind of key questions that one wants to uh, consider. Um, but you also want to consider what the impact of this is upon the individual and those around them. You actually want to know, has anyone else noticed it? Has anyone within the family and within their work, etc., noticed and or commented upon it? They also want to figure out um, or ask the patient, how is it impacting? Is it really affecting your life in some way? You're becoming isolated, etc. Okay, thank you. And moving on for the, from the history to the clinical examination, how should you examine them? What should, what should you look for on examination? Well, based on the, uh, the, the knowledge that most oral malodor bad breath actually comes from the mouth, it's just a quick examination of the mouth and perhaps the upper airways, the nose and the pharynx. There is no need to do a, a detailed, uh, more system, systemic um, examination of the patient because you're looking, first of all, is there a possible source of bad breath? And secondly, is there bad breath? Now, there are all sorts of ways proposed to look at this, but frankly, just sniffing the patient's mouth while you're examining them will give you a good idea of whether there's likely to, there is halitosis or not. There is no need for specialised investigations in the vast majority of people who have oral uh, bad breath. Okay, thank you. That's, that's very clear. And I guess to get to the real meat of the subject, what are the common causes of halitosis? The most common reason for halitosis is poor oral status, oral hygiene, etc. So where there is gum inflammation, gingivitis, where there are broken down teeth which are capturing food, where there is um, involvement of the periodontium, the bit that holds the teeth in when it's inflamed, they are the most common reasons for someone having oral malodor. So the second reason why, yeah, the second possible cause of oral malodor might be coming from the upper airways. For example, 
um, the nose? Is there, is there, for example, in a child, a foreign body within it? Does someone have long-standing tonsillitis? Is it likely that they may have some enlargement of the adenoids? Are they mouth-breathing for some reason? That's the second group of uh, things to think about. But the vast majority are coming from the mouth. So if the mouth look, the gums look red, swollen, then that suggests there's gingivitis, and that is the most probable reason for the altered breath smell. Now, I'll just consider a little bit about the tongue. The tongue is a source of altered breath because the tongue has a coating. Everyone has a coating on the tongue. It's where the epithelium from the tongue is lying, where bits of bacteria sit, where food debris, etc. lies. But there is actually no strong link between the, uh, the coating of the tongue and oral malodor or, or bad breath. But looking at the tongue is important because other things coming from the tongue can cause bad breath, such as mouth cancer. Thank you, Stephen. And, and what about diet? Oh, diet. Um, what we eat affects our breath. It's kind of common sense as regards that. So if we eat agents which are odiferous or considered to be odiferous by a particular population, they do give advice to alter breath or bad breath. But what is considered bad breath varies from culture to culture. So a culture which um, uses particular foods would not consider um, a particular breath as being abnormal, whereas in another culture they might. So certainly foods do play a role in altering the breath, but whether that's considered bad breath is open to question depending on culture. But the common things that are going to alter the breath would be onions, garlic, chilies, things of that kind. Okay, thank you. And you're saying that the majority of patients, they don't need further tests, but I'm guessing some patients might need further tests. And could you tell us what patients might they be and what further tests might be necessary? There are very few patients who actually warrant really detailed investigation of, of, of halitosis, because halitosis can be caused by chest disease, such as um, pulmonary abscess. It can be caused by um, hepatic disease, but it's end-stage hepatic disease is going to do it. It can be caused by renal disease. So the patient's going to have end-stage renal disease. And those instances, well, the direction of travel is to deal with the other symptoms and signs likely to be present in those individuals, confirming there is hepatic disease or confirming it has worsened, or confirming existing renal disease has worsened, etc. These are all directed towards the underlying cause. They're not at all relevant, really, to or specific to the oral malodor itself. Now, there are rare disorders where the patients have altered breath. Um, the best example of that is trimethylaminuria, which is a autosomal recessive disorder where the, the patients lack a particular enzyme. And as a consequence, they build up trimethylamines, which comes out in fluids, saliva, breath, um, urine, etc. Those individuals are very few in number. These are the individuals who don't necessarily require any exam, any detailed investigation by the general practitioner, but they require referral to an appropriate centre. There is a risk that patients with with halitosis will become over-investigated because the textbooks always point towards 
diabetes mellitus giving rise to altered breath, renal disease, hepatic disease. But for the vast majority of patients coming to general practice, they do not have these problems. They do not require any detailed investigation of any kind. Okay, thank you. Um, we may have covered this already, um, but I wonder, are there any other pitfalls, common pitfalls to avoid in diagnosis, or have we touched on most of them? One pitfall is if a patient comes to you saying, I've been to the dentist and they have measured the amount of sulfite in my breath. This is likely to be not helpful because breath smell or although halitosis is not based just upon the presence of sulfides. It's based upon a series of a uh, whole variety of different chemicals generated by the bacteria of the mouth, amines, short-chain fatty acids, even alcohols, acetone, etc. So if a patient comes to you, uh, comes to the practice, and they have got a piece of paper saying they've been to someone, they've got a sulfide monitor estimate, which shows that they've got an, an abnormal breath, do not necessarily believe that that is the cause of the altered breath. Okay, thank you. Um, last question about diagnosis or, or maybe differential diagnosis is uh, pseudohalitosis. What is pseudohalitosis? Now, pseudohalitosis is an interesting area um, because there are all sorts of definitions used for it. But a simple definition is that the person believes they have got bad breath or halitosis, but they clearly do not. And this is rare. Well, it's suggested in, that uh, in patients referred to centres that deal with halitosis, up to 10% of patients may have it, but it is in the main rare. But it is remarkably devastating for the individual because they hold this belief that they have got bad breath with such conviction that it influences their life. They stop interacting with their family. They stop interacting with the people at work. I've even known instances where the individual has changed their, um, their, their work away from something which is publicly facing to something which is much less so. So this is a rare but significant problem because the patient truly believes that they have got bad breath. And what's underlying this usually is some distress of life. It is a manifestation, you might say, of an anxiety, a depression. It might be even considered to be an OCD type scenario is going on here. So while it is rare, it is remarkably devastating for the individual and needs to be taken seriously. It is the one instance where I would say that the, G, the, 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 the patient requires a referral to hospital to have this, this um, sorted out. Thanks, Stephen. Um, back to halitosis itself. What treatments are available? Now, the vast majority of people who have halitosis simply have problems inside the mouth. The mouth essentially needs to be cleaned up. The bacterial load needs to be reduced. So uh, for the vast majority of patients, they require to be sent to a dentist or they be given at the very beginning advice on how to clean the mouth. Very simple things like cleaning the teeth twice a day with a toothbrush, using a mouthwash of some kind. That is the starting point of this. And it might seem common sense, but for many people, they don't. They may not even know how to clean the teeth or how frequently they have to do it. 
A vast array of mouthwashes and toothpaste are on the market, suggested to be particularly good for oral malodor or bad breath. No one seems to be better than another. The literature does not support that idea. So sensibly, cleaning the mouth twice a day with a toothbrush, if possible, and secondly, using a mouthwash of some kind is usually sufficient. They can mask the oral, the alter, the halitosis with chewing gum, etc. And that, that's fine, as long as the chewing gum does not contain sugar, because sugar in turn will cause dental decay. Okay, thank you. And what pitfalls should we avoid in treatment? Um, the pitfall that I would consider to be most important for GGPs is to consider that bad breath reflects systemic disease. In the vast majority of instances, it doesn't. It just reflects something going on within the mouth and to a lesser extent occurring in the upper airway. For example, acute maxillary sinusitis, where the pus is coming out, going into the nose and dripping back on the, on the, uh, the pharynx. Um, or another example might be a foreign body stuck up the nose of a child. Um, this actually can lead to a quite, quite profound altered breath smell. So in the main... The obvious thing is a halitosis comes from the mouth, usually affects poor hygiene or a build-up of food and debris, etc., and nothing else. Okay, thank you. Um, last question, which is a question about questions, really. What other questions do you get asked about halitosis? What have we missed? If you think about having bad breath, it's unpleasant for those around um, it's unpleasant for the individual as well because it starts to limit their life. They don't want to socialise, they don't want to talk, they want to be close to people. So actually it has a, a downside upon one's quality or enjoyment of life. And if you can remove all that very simply by telling the patient, well, this is what it is, this is what we will do, you're going to help by keeping the mouth clean or whatever, then it makes a great difference because all of a sudden they've got rid of the problem, they've got their confidence back and they're able to interact with, their, with, with life again. It makes such a difference. Okay, thank you very much, Stephen. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign in to BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again. Mm-hmm.